Hey, welcome to the Scrum GBH's Politics Podcast. I'm Adam Riley with Peter Kadzis. Hello, Peter. Hey, Adam. Hey, folks. This is our final Scrum episode before the 2020 election, which a lot of people, myself very much included, think of as far and away the most important and consequential election of their lifetimes. In this episode, you're going to hear whether Peter Kadzis agrees with that dramatic take. You're also going to hear what some of our favorite Scrum guests from past episodes think the big story is going to be after November 3rd, as we move away from at least the official day of the election. But Peter Kadzis, before we hear from those old favorites, and I should mention them up top, by the way, we've got Sue O'Connell, Joan Venaki, Wilnelia Rivera, and Yawu Miller all weighing in with what they think the big story post-November 3rd is going to be. Let me start by asking you where your head is at heading into Election Day, and I guess whether, for starters, you see this as as fraught with meaning and significance as I do. Well, I'm trying to empty my head, Adam. I'm trying to approach November 3rd with as clear and open a mind as I can. Um, memories of 2016 uh, are just too strong with me. I always knew Trump could win, but I never was quite sure he would. So I haven't even gone that far. I've got a very open mind. But here's what I'm looking for. Let's start in Massachusetts. The odds are we're going to get the returns, you know, probably early early in the morning, Wednesday morning. I want to see how Worcester County goes. Our colleague, Carrie Saldo, uh, did a terrific story on um, uh, WGBHnews.org about Worcester County, which is a swath of red in a very blue state. Um, last presidential election, I think it was uh, all, 33 of the 60 communities in Worcester County um, voted for Trump-Pence. And I just want to see how does that turn out this year. Then let's go north to New Hampshire. Now, four years ago, Hillary Clinton eked out, oh, uh, you know, a 1% or less victory, uh, garnering for herself the Granite State's four electoral votes. The polls suggest that Biden is doing much better than Trump there. We'll see. The way I'm looking at it is this is the lazy man's way of trying to determine the trend. Then I'm going to, you know, cast my eye up to Maine for the Susan Collins race, where the Republican senator is, you know, facing the fight of her lifetime. Now, the tricky thing about Maine is because they have ranked choice voting there, it's going to be several days before we have a final result from there. But still, I'm really curious to see. I mean, Collins, all the professional odds makers say Collins is in trouble. Maine's a very quirky state. Um, The Democrats are hoping that they can regain the Senate. Um, Beating Collins will be an important part of that. So just locally, 
Worcester County, New Hampshire, and the Collins race are three things that I'm trying to focus on. I got to ask you, and this is a little unusual for, for us here, a somewhat personal question. When you talk about trying to empty your head and not get ahead of yourself, identify these local stories, local questions you're going to be focusing on, are you doing that for professional reasons or personal existential reasons or some combination of the two? I don't think I can separate them at this point, Adam. Um, you know, I'm going to watch a lot of Miss Marple reruns this weekend. Um, you know, I'll, I'll look at the Sunday papers. Our jobs require us to stay up with the news, but um, I'm just going to fight the urge to have an opinion about what's going to happen. Uh, it's a very good question, but uh, I recommend Miss Marple. When you mentioned uh, Miss Marple, and incidentally, in my home, we're still working our way through the, the Poirot shows, it reminded me of a comment that I, I made to Zoe Matthews, our producer, just this morning. You know, we, we've got this fraught election coming up. It's snowy. It's been dark for days. And I said to Zoe that I just want to wrap myself in a blanket and drink mulled wine and read a book, which I, I, my, I may find a way to get into my weekend activities. But I think of that as analogous to hunkering down with Miss Marshall. Yeah, it, it's the same thing. And I'll tell you, given the what my wife has the thermostat said that, I could use a, rat, a blanket around <laughs> myself right now. Let's take a listen at this point to the prognostications of Sue O'Connell, the co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News and the NECN and NBC10 television personality. She has some thoughts about what she believes is legal wrangling that is unquestionably going to follow November 3rd, whatever the short-term outcome is. I think it's clear that there are going to be lots of lawsuits on Wednesday morning, and certainly the party that doesn't win will be challenging the legality of the election. However, I think we should also look at the lawsuits that are going to be happening on state levels by local groups. This mail-in voting, absentee voting, people's ballots not being counted, even though it has the correct postmark, some ballots being disqualified because the signature doesn't match exactly. I don't remember a time when citizens have felt so deeply connected to their right to vote and how difficult it has been made for them. And I think that many people are going to be demanding from their state lawmakers a more fair and safe way to cast their ballots. I don't think there's been a time where we have felt such personal uh, danger in casting a ballot. And we keep saying, you know, we're at the middle of this pandemic. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Well, we're not in the middle of a pandemic. We're at the beginning of a pandemic. And next year, when it comes to primary time and general election time, we're going to be facing some of the same challenges in casting our votes safely. So big picture, big lawsuits. Small picture, lawsuits. My answer is lawsuits. Peter Kadzis, is Sue O'Connell on the mark there? Yes, but I'd like to make a larger point, which in no way negates what Sue was saying. We've gone very quickly from a highly centralized system of voting to a highly decentralized system. And moving ahead, um, we have to recognize that this is very unstable. I think in Massachusetts, it's working out very well. 
the instability of it is a factor of it being brand new and, you know, being triggered by COVID. Um, you know, I'm You're talking, talking about, about early voting, the expansion of mail-in voting. All of that. Um, during an election of supreme importance, we're casting our votes in new ways. So um, a, a lot of the questions locally that may arise don't have to do with conspiracies. It's just the way things happen. Then you move to other parts of the nation, like Florida, you know, which is a swamp um, in more ways than one. So litigation is going to factor big time. While we're on the topic of litigation, let me ask you how attentive you think the Supreme Court is at the moment to the repeated exhortations that they're getting from President Trump about what he hopes they'll do uh, in and around the election. I saw a tweet from him maybe an hour before we're talking right now, in which he said that if Biden wins, the four plus one judges who let that happen are going to see their influence diluted. The court's going to be packed or maybe people will be rotated in and out of the court. And Kyle Cheney, who used to work at Statehouse News Service and has now gone on to be a big, important guy at Politico, said, you know, here we have Trump basically making it entirely clear that he wants the Supreme Court, several of whose members he's nominated, to decide the outcome of the election. Do you think that kind of stuff crosses their radar? And if so, how do you think they engage with it? Well, this is the beauty of having a clear mind. Um, we don't know. I think everyone in the media puts way too much importance on the content of Trump's tweets. Listen, those are aimed at the general public. I don't know what the Supreme Court's going to do. Um, <clears throat> and I'm going to wait, wait until they do it to see. I could imagine the Supreme Court ruling in Trump's favor for perfectly legitimate legal reasons as they see it. I have more faith in them as individuals. Um, not to do the right thing as I see it, but to do the right thing as they see it. Look, they're not idiots. They know Trump is a boob. Are they politically motivated? Sure they are. Um, it, that's the way I leave it. You know, we're talking about, the, about ultimate hardball here. Trump's tweets have no effect with the Supreme Court. Now let's take a listen to the hopes outlined by Joan Venaki, the Boston Globe columnist and editorial board member. She, like a lot of other people, is heading into Tuesday thinking of the election as a referendum, not just on Donald Trump and Joe Biden, but on fundamental American identity. Let's take a listen. Of course, I want it to be that Donald Trump loses by a lot and ends the national nightmare. And that it happened because we all looked in the mirror and didn't like what we saw. We realized that his bad character did something bad to ours too. So collectively, we decided we are better than what he and his true believers want the country to stand for. We decided there's something more important than the stock market or the state of our 401k that there are values and principles we believe in. That's the story I would love to be able to write. 
maybe I'm too optimistic, but I think there's a good chance, or at least some chance, it happens that way. If the story is that people voted him out because he screwed up the handling of the coronavirus, that's okay too. As long as he's gone, peacefully, if not gracefully. If he's not gone, of course the story is why. Writing that story in 2020 will feel even worse than it did in 2016, because now we know exactly what it says about this country. Peter Kadzis, you've known Joan for a long time. I've known her for a sort of a, a long time now myself. I was struck at the depth of feeling that came across there. I can hear how emotionally invested she is in whatever happens heading into next week. I don't think she's an outlier. I think a lot of people are. In your memory, and you know that you tend to play the sort of sage older timer to my uh, naive, increasingly old timer. Um, In your memory, has there been another election where people are as emotionally invested in the outcome heading in? Or is this, in your recollection, a unique moment in American political history? I don't know if I'd use the word unique. It's certainly a special moment. Um, 1968 was a, a, a pretty intense election and was pretty fraught. I mean, that's the election that saw um, Richard Nixon move to the White House. Um, I was, when I listened to Joan, I heard Joan Venaki citizen more than Joan Venaki journalist speaking. And I don't think Joan would be insulted when she hears that I said that. Joan raises a very interesting point. My own theory is that if Trump is to lose, it'll be because he has failed in his ceremonial duties. Now, what I mean by that is the president of the United States is the, the, the head of state as well as the head of government. The head of state in England is the queen. Um, most nations, like Germany, for example, Germany has a president who goes around investing professors and giving awards and doing important ceremonial tasks. But, uh, you, you know, it's Angela Merkel who runs the show. In the United States, those the, the ceremonial and the practical are, are wedded in the person of the president. And if Trump loses, it is going to be because he has failed to be the national leader. That doesn't mean everyone would have to agree with him, but it's remarkable that during the four years of his presidency, he essentially has had 40% support with 50% saying they disapproved, 40% said they approved, and roughly 10% in the middle. You know, that's four years of that. He's a minority president. And if he pulls it off and is reelected, it'll be quite a political feat to, to be a two-time minority president. Listen, I think Trump's failings with COVID are a reflection of his failure as the leader of the American people. 
Um, yes, it's a very specific hot and concrete issue, but he has never been able to wrap his mind around persuading people who don't support him. Um, and if he loses, it's going to be because he was a lousy ceremonial leader, because there are a lot of implications behind the symbolism of that. It's important to note, though, that if Trump does win, and, and I understand Jones' shock at the prospect, I think most, I think many Trump voters realize that um, that their man is a corrupt incompetent. But at the same time, they realize he's favorable to them, whether it is in terms of taxes or um, whether it is in terms of broader social issues. Um, we have a point where there are some people who say, look, the guy's a bum, but he's a bum. It's very tribal. Is it disturbing? You bet. I want to move on now to Wilnelia Rivera, the founder and president of Rivera Consulting. She took a different tack than Joan. Joan is looking to the election, whenever it's resolved, as a question that will yield a definitive answer, a definitive resolution. And Wilnelia's take, I think I can say, is that whatever happens on Election Day, whoever the next occupant of the White House is, that there is going to be a big lingering question specifically about the character of the Democratic Party. I'm going to focus on the story that should be. This past election cycle for all Americans was about facing a historic crossroad on whether those that have been denied power in this country will have the inalienable rights to equality, equity, and a social safety net. In real time, and perhaps unlike any other generation, we've had a passenger seat's view of what becomes of a people, a country, when we look the other way at greed, injustice, and corruption. The deficit of trust among us is contorted more by the ineffectiveness of our decision makers and a media culture seduced by the very power it's supposed to hold accountable. Yet we know that the party that advances to the White House, U.S. Congress, and to our state legislatures will ultimately determine whether we continue down this march of this historic crossroad or not. Even with historic turnout across this country, we witness state-sanctioned voter suppression, race baiting, and white nationalism on full display. A minority of this country clearly desires a return to pre-civil rights era, and the larger, moderate majority desires a return to normalcy. This political reality is not new. The difference now is that a growing majority of Americans who have been denied their inalienable rights or have been denied the pursuit of their happiness will not simply legitimize a society that erases them. Democrats need to understand that win or lose, they must boldly become the political party that centers on remembrance, truth, and reconciliation of America's original sin. 400 years of chattel slavery and the persistent legacy of white supremacy culture can no longer be ignored. This is not the playbook of the rebirth of the nation. It starts with longtime party leaders getting out of the way and allowing the next generation of leaders to become the ambassadors of what a transformative vision of America means. Well, Nelia raises a very important and very complicated point. The Democrats are a collection of many varied interests. They are, by nature, 
diverse, not in the politically correct sense, but in the dictionary sense. It, it's a whole made up of many parts. The Republicans are more monochromatic. I think Will Nellia, as a professional political consultant, represents candidates who she would describe as being in the ascendant left. And she clearly sees people like uh, Congresswoman Presley, for whom she's worked, as being the wave of the future. Um, I think that remains to be seen. Um, they are a force that must be reckoned with. I'd like to dig a little deeper into what she said. Um, it is an indisputable fact that if Joe Biden wins, um, the Democratic Party will owe a tremendous debt to black voters. Black voters were the key part of the coalition that elected Barack Obama, and they will be key not only to electing in Joe Biden, but they were key to him winning the Democratic nomination. Um, I think the day of party leaders being able to marginalize black voters um, is over. And that is going to be something relatively new in American politics. Obama instinctively treaded very carefully when he went into racial issues. He loosened up as his eight-year term went on, but Biden, if elected, is just going to owe a huge debt to black voters. Now, here in the Northeast, I think we may tend to think that all black voters are alike. That's not true. Um, you go south and you're going to get black voters who were socially conservative. They're not as socially conservative as they were 20 years ago, but they're still going to be more socially conservative than black voters in the North, for example. I think if Biden wins, we're going to see um, new light shed on the black population of voters, and um, we're going to have to deal with um, the varieties of opinion within the black community. But no matter how diverse that opinion is, that opinion is ultimately black. And that, I think, is going to be something very new in American politics. Do you think that the question of whether Biden, if he wins, goes the way Will Nellia would like to see him go, do you think it depends on things like the margin of his hypothetical possible victory, uh, or conversely on, you know, if he wins, as the numbers are crunched, the extent to which he determines and he and his, or, and his advisors determine that certain groups help put him over the top? I'll tell you, Adam, I, I've, I think there's a clear answer to that, and that it's going to have less to do with um, the margin of Biden's victory or a possible victory. It's going to have everything to do with the makeup of the House of Representatives in the U.S. Senate. Um, his relations with Congress and the makeup of Congress is going to be what determines that. All right. Now we have our final piece of prognostication. This one from Yabu Miller, the senior editor of the Bay State Banner. 
He didn't weigh in on big federal questions that we'll have answered maybe in the next week or so. Instead, he's very focused on the city of Boston and the direction that Boston politics are moving in. The mayoral race will likely be the big story in Boston politics next year, with Michelle Wu popular among progressive whites and Andrea Campbell poised to make inroads with black voters. Walsh's multi-ethnic base of support may be tested. Both challengers as city councilors have staked out positions to the left of the mayor on a range of issues. They will likely help push Walsh to the left. I think the shift in Boston politics to the left is kind of the major theme that's been taking place over the last seven years. Back in 2013, there were still eight white men on the city council. Now, there are only four. The 2018 election was a pivotal moment with Ayanna Presley beating out incumbent Mike Capuano for the 7th Congressional District and Rachel Rollins winning in a five-way race for Suffolk County District Attorney. She ran against three women and three black people, going up against the white male, Greg Henning, who had the support of the police unions. In past years, those odds might have killed Rollins' chances, yet she had nearly twice the votes Henning received, running far to his left. She won in most wards in the city and even came within 10 points of Henning in West Roxbury's Ward 20, a traditionally conservative-leaning, strongly Irish ward. The change dynamics in Boston with a more left-leaning electorate will inform the mayoral and city council races. Challengers may not beat incumbents, but inspect the incumbents to continue staking out positions further to the left. Peter, as I listened to Yahoo there, what struck me was, I think I'm interpreting this correctly, his conviction that even if Biden makes it to the White House, there's a pretty good chance that Marty Walsh is going to be sticking around and seeking re-election to the mayor's job next year, as opposed to heading off to Washington. Am I reading him right? I don't think I'm I'm giving anything away to our listeners that because of COVID, we've had these conversations, you know, taped and swapped around and we weren't all in one room. Um, Maybe he thinks that or maybe he chose just to really play the local angle as a good local editor might be. I appreciate, by the way, that you didn't tell me, Adam, if you want to know what Yahoo was thinking, why don't you ask him yourself? Which you could have. You would have been in your rights to do that. So thank you for not doing that. If Walsh leaves Boston, it's not that what Yahoo said is uh, wrong. There's a lot of wisdom and a lot of insight into what he says. But if Walsh leaves Boston to go to Washington or become ambassador to Ireland, um, things are going to get even more complicated than um, Yahoo suggested. And that's because Kim Janey, the president of the Boston City Council, will become acting mayor. Then that raises the question, will she join Michelle Wu and Andrea Campbell in the race? So we don't know. But let's stick with the thrust of what he was saying. Yahoo quite rightly sees Boston uh, as having gone trending left and being more progressive. And the Presley's victory in Congress and Rollins' victory as DA is solid evidence of that, as is the makeup of the Boston City Council. Um, But when Bostonians are voting on Boston issues, 
things get even more complicated. Adam, you may remember that in the, the poll, WGBH News ran a few, I guess it's a couple of months ago now, we were all surprised by the number of registered voters who thought it very important that the next mayor be, you know, a Boston native. That frankly surprised me. In retrospect, it doesn't surprise me, but I would not have predicted that would be the answer. So there's, there's a lot there. I'm not so sure that when Bostonians vote on Boston issues, specifically the mayor, they'll be as lefty as they are when they voted for the city council. That's debatable, and we'll, we'll find out about that pretty soon. Um, I feel more confident in saying that um, while Rawlins and Presley are not outliers, they're very representative of a new trend, you have to look at Governor um, Baker's general support in and around Boston to see that there are moderating influences there. The left is clearly in ascendance. What's the rate of its ascendance? I honestly don't know. And that's what elections are for. Now that you've offered those great insights about political matters, let me ask you to close with any other counsel that you might have. And you didn't present this as counsel at the beginning, but I love your idea of this Zen approach to the run-up to Election Day and after, clearing your mind, hunkering down with Miss Marple. Any other uh, personal counsel that you might want to give our listeners for you know, ways that we can all think about approaching this big event? Well, I don't know. Spend some time with your families. Um, enjoy a meal together. Um, one of the unexpected upsides of the uh, pandemic has been, you know, Sue and I have uh, our two 21-year-old sons living with us during this, and it's just been great. And I do think these elections are, are very tense. They raise a lot of anxiety among so many people for so many different reasons. I would be old-fashioned and say, um, you know, spend time with your family, find solace in your friends. And that is going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. Thanks to Sue O'Connell, Joan Vinaki, Wilnelia Rivera, and Yawu Miller for weighing in. And as always, to you for taking the time to listen. Subscribe to The Scrum, rate us if you haven't already, and talk back to us if you want to tell us what we're getting right or what we're getting wrong. You can email us at scrum at wgbh.org or find us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Our producer, Zoe Matthews, is at Zoe S. Matthews. That's Matthews with one T. And Peter Kadzis, you are? At Kadzis, capital K-A-D-Z-I-S. We'll talk to you again next week. The Scrum is a production of GBH News.